going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. That's right, it is the Going Deep Podcast, and I am Donovan Bennett, and I love to have really, really thought-provoking, interesting stream-of-consciousness conversations, and this episode is exactly that. We've talked about in this space the change and really evolution that we're seeing in pro sports, specifically in North America, the amount of money that's being invested, the amount of analytics and data that people are using to make decisions both about the on-field and off-field product, and who wants stake in teams, who wants to own and be a part of the ever-growing pie that is big-time sports. Well, I figured we should examine that even further. No better person to talk about the world of analytics and sports business than someone who's covered and talked about Moneyball and soccernomics for a long time. And that person is Bruce Schoenfeld. Now, you probably know his work from his writing in the New York Times as he's done cover stories for the New York Times Magazine before, but he's also got a new book. Game of Edges, the Analytics Revolution in the Future of Professional Sports. And that future in some areas is really, really bright, but also in some areas could be dark. If you are a fan who just wants to have a romantic relationship with your local sports team, is that possible now? And if so, how? Let's listen to and learn from Bruce Schoenfeld as we go deep on big-time analytics and ownership in pro sport. Bruce, thanks for joining. As I just said, the book is such an easy page-turner, but you talk to so many interesting people in different roles in sport. Take me to the beginning in terms of why you thought there was a need to write this book at this time and who you decided to talk to to fulfill what you were hoping to uh, with the piece of work? Well, it actually happened kind of in reverse in that I'd been chronicling a lot of this for a bunch of different outlets. I write for the New York Times Magazine, for Sports Business Journal. Uh, from the moment that it started, I was their first columnist, and for other entities, Esquire, um, ESPN. And over the course of, you know, 20-odd years, I had sort of, traced the development of these sports franchises at the time when I first started covering sports, they were still, they, they still occupied a very small financial space in the portfolio of most of these owners. So that I, I was with, uh, as I, I talk about in the book, I was with Bob Tisch soon after he bought half of the New York giants for $75 million. And we were standing on the sidelines and he was, you know, he had been the U S postmaster general and, uh, more to the point, he owned he and his family owned Lorillard Tobacco and Lowe's Hotels and a whole bunch of other stuff. And seventy five million dollars was 
you know, kind of a drop in the bucket in his portfolio. And he said, I'm just going to pretend I never had that money, you know, which is <laughs> like, you know, that's nice work if you can get it. But but I understood that the concept was this is not important to me. I don't care if they make money. I'm doing this almost like you'd buy a yacht or an art collection. It's just a I have a lot of money and this is what I want to own. Well, as the value of these franchises grew in the 20 odd years that followed that, it became clear they were, and by necessity, had to be treated differently by their owners. Um, they're also a different type of owner, but I'll get to that. But, you know, when, a, when, when an entity is worth, you know, $500 million, a billion dollars, $2 billion, $3 billion, I mean, that's real money. It's hard to forget you had that $3 billion, you know. That's a very different proposition. And, and as businesses of that size, there needed to be this ongoing – uh, uh, growth, ongoing revenue streams for the business to continue. And so by necessity, they have to be treated not so much as toys for rich people, but as very serious businesses. And there, there are some good um, uh, uh, ramifications of that and some bad ones. But over the past 10 or 15 years, it became clear these businesses were being run like serious businesses with the same best practices, data analysis and other things that these owners were using, the owners, most of whom came from the financial world, were using in all the other businesses they were involved in. And it seemed like kind of the, 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 the other half of the money ball, of the post-money ball saga, at the same time that all this was happening, the sports, mostly baseball and basketball and then soccer, less football and hockey, but that's coming, they were getting optimized too, based on all this new technology available and the, and, the, and the new realization that most things could be quantified. And if you looked in the right place, you could learn what was really happening. And it turned out that the optimized version of these sports wasn't entertaining. It wasn't as entertaining in a lot of cases as the suboptimal version. So at the same time, you had these sports franchises evolving. The games they were playing were not as entertaining, and yet they had to find more ways to grow, new revenue streams, new ways to engage with fans. And that seemed like like the inherent tension in there just seemed like this is a story worth telling. So, you know, fortunately, I had, I had talked with a lot of these people over the last 20 years. And a lot of what I do in the book is sort of, is sort of take some of that and, 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 uh, um, and weave it together and then use that as a jumping off point. So, um, Really, the people who I've talked to in the past couple of years have been places in the narrative that I, I, I saw people doing interesting things and, and reached out to them. Ryan Smith at the Utah Jazz is one. Um, the, the Manchester City uh, uh, City Football Group um, is another. And, and Ted Leonsis, who is at the forefront of, of gambling, owns the Washington Wizards and, and uh, Washington Capitals, was another. Um, and and really just sort of rounded out the story by um, by going out and, and, and seeking out those people. It seems over time the archetype of who an owner is has changed. You look originally it was someone with civic pride for a city who really wanted to own and shepherd a team as a gift to that city to make sure that the community had something to rally around. I think of the Rooney family. Then owners seem to become a bit like celebrities, and you you did it 
for some cultural cachet. Think of someone like Jerry Jones. And then you have owners who the platform that owning a sports team gives you was able to supercharge all of their other businesses. I think of someone like Mark Cuban. Now it seems like owning the team can just be the business. It could be something that has the return on investment that allows you to, you know, retire just on the compound interest that you make over time. What are the cultural but also market factors that have changed the dynamics of ownership? Or is that more of a oversimplification the, the way I see it? No, I think you're exactly right. Um, I think the intermediate, the, the Jerry Jones and Mark Cubans, I think were a little bit one-offs. But I do think um, two two significant factors. One is, as we discussed, the, the the great increase in valuations of these franchises, so that you now couldn't be like a car dealer like Bud Selig was when he when he uh, ended up owning the Milwaukee Brewers. The, the amount of money necessary. Um, really limited the number of people, even in combination with each other, that could be involved here. The second, I think, is more is more societal. And you look at the people who are getting really rich in this in, in North America um, in the 21st century. There are no longer people who, like Bob Kraft in the cardboard box industry, who make things, who own one business and it does really well, and they get rich. They're financial people. They're people that run. Uh, that that have are in the private equity business, that are in hedge funds and venture capital, uh, people like Joe Lacob who owns the Golden State Warriors, um, people like Josh Harris who's buying the Washington Commanders and and owns Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils and a big chunk of Crystal Palace in the Premier League. These are people that have made their money moving numbers around and being involved with many many different companies and. Their way of their way of working. Another one, a really interesting one, is Jeff Binnick, who owns the Tampa Bay Lightning, who um, who worked at Fidelity, and and they were exposed to a lot of different businesses and a lot of different companies, and and have made an art out of growing um, distressed or, or or young equities into thriving businesses, and so they come kind of complete with this mo of how to do that. And, and the best practices involved in running these businesses. You know, somebody who who owned a cardboard box company is coming from a very different perspective. One of the interesting things is that this whole trend is has, has happened much less in the NFL. Part of the reason for that is that 16 of the 32 NFL teams, 16 of the 32 current owners, inherited their team from another family member. And they haven't been out doing all these uh, financial investments involved with 100 different companies. They've basically grown up in the football business. So you don't have nearly as much of that sort of cutting-edge um, involvement with the financial world. You have somebody who, whose grandfather had the team or whose husband had the team or, or father had the team, and this is what they know. Um, the NBA is on the other side of the spectrum where teams change hands really, uh, really rapidly. A lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, young, relatively young million, multi multi-millionaires, billionaires, Robert Perra in Memphis, uh, the, the two owners in Milwaukee, um, uh, Wes Edens and Mark Lasry, um, people who at 
in their 40s now have enough money to do something with. And they look to an NBA team not only as, hey, I love basketball, this will be fun, but it's one of the best places to grow your portfolio for the coming years. There are few other businesses that are as protected, in a sense, that will um, that will grow um, almost uh, – they're scaffolded to such extent by the leagues that they can't fail. Even if they don't make money year after year, you have enough money, and when you sell, you're going to make a huge multiple of what you bought. So, so these franchises are attracting those kind of investors in a way that they never did before. And you remember – I mean, you're, I'm older than you are, but I think even you remember a time when there were some sports franchises that were troubled – that it was by no means a, a, a sure deal. If you bought a NHL team or an NBA team, um, that it was going to be around in 10 years. A lot of them were distressed assets, and, 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 and there were owners that had to scramble. I mean, that's not the case anymore. Every, even even a, a, a team that's, that's having uh, facilities and other problems like, like the Coyotes, uh, at any point, there's so few of these teams, and the expansion era is basically over, you can sell it for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's, that's something that's not true in other categories. So yeah, it is attracting very different people than it, than it attracted even 20 years ago. Well, I mean, we have two recent examples, whether it's the Washington commanders or the Ottawa senators, two franchises who did not perform well, but financially, you know, weren't maybe reaching a baseline. You think they would, in the case of the commanders, had great scandal, uh, both with the owner but within the franchise, and yet as soon as they're up for sale, they move for record prices. Are these franchises, no matter how you run them, no matter what you do to them, are they at a place where they're they're somewhat bulletproof as investments? Yeah, that's the word I was going to use. I, I, I do think they are. Um and, you know, it's interesting because this, the ground is shifting under them. Uh, for a long time, the, the, the growth of these franchises has been driven by television contracts, which just keep going up and up and up and up. Um, that's now uh, – those are, those are now in jeopardy. As you know, a lot of people are, are, uh, are not only cord-cutting but never, never cord-attaching. You know, they'll – the uh, people in their 20s and even 30s will move in and never bother to get cable television. They'll just um, they'll just use their laptops and, and pick and choose to stream whatever they want, whether that's you know Netflix and, and other movies or live sports kind of a la carte. But even with that, um, the valuation of these franchises, can, compared with everything else out there, continues to be. You know, wildly strong. The fact that the Ottawa Senators, in in one of the smallest markets in all of North America, can go for a billion dollars, I think really creates a floor. If the Ottawa Senators are worth a billion dollars, I'm basically everybody is right. I mean, there's you know that's 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 kind of astonishing. Uh, the 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 Commanders, I think, I think there's a sense that they've been mismanaged under Dan Snyder, and that he. In the same way that Donald Sterling did, he left a lot of money on the table. When he, when he bought them in 1999, they were one of the two or three most valuable sports – I think they were actually number one most valuable sports franchise in the world. Um, they're now no longer in the top ten. I don't even think they're uh, – I have it I have it in the book. I don't remember the numbers exactly. I don't, they may not even be in the top ten in the NFL. 
So there's a lot of, you know, you know, they had a sellout string that ended after 50 years in 2018. There's a, there's a huge fan base there waiting to be activated. And of course the NFL is the remains the most consistently lucrative uh, sports league in the world. Um, If the Denver Broncos are worth whatever billion, then the, the, uh, the commanders in that market are worth whatever plus, you know, and it just keeps going up and up and up and up. Um, I will, I want to point out and, 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 you know, we can get in this discussion greater or lesser, depending on what you want, but what has replaced uh, television contracts to a certain extent as the great vast revenue stream of the future is gambling. And, and one of the things that gambling does that is, that is so insidious, but, but profitable is it, it creates an opportunity for people to have a stake in a sports event without really caring who wins. So the good of that, if we were the NBA, Adam Silver describes to me, he says, look, we don't even need any new customers. We have a billion people that watch the NBA, follow the NBA around the world. If we can get each of them to watch it, watch every game for five or six minutes more on average, that's by far the, 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 the easiest way that we can grow our businesses. I mean, by easily our biggest growth potential is in increased engagement with the people who are already there. And for, you know, forever, and you know as a sports fan, if the game's you know, 103.82 in the fourth quarter, well, let's see what else is on, right? I mean, why, why continue watching that? Well, if you have a bet on which team will win the fourth quarter or how many three-pointers will be taken in the fourth quarter, um, now all of a sudden, you know, what used to be garbage time is crunch time for you, and you're sitting there and, and maybe your, your wife or your husband or your girlfriend or whatever – are, are, are saying, what are you watching this game for? It's, you know, they're, they're, they're losing by 30. I know, but one more three-pointer and I win my bet. Well, the good of that is increased engagement. The bad part of it is you now have a, a, a increased misalignment between what the players are trying to accomplish and what you're rooting for. You have that with fantasy sports to a certain extent. Like, yeah, I, I hate the Blue Jays, but I love, but I have, I have Vladdy on my team, so I'm going to watch and root for him, you know. But with, with these, some of these increasingly Baroque bets, you have people watching for reasons that go way beyond, that's my favorite team, I want them to win, you know? And, and, there's, and while the short-term engagement is there, there's really no evidence that a lot of these people who have come to sports and spend a lot of time on fantasy or a lot of time gambling, that they have any kind of stickiness, long-term interest in a club, and when the next thing comes along, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how many of them stay around. And, you know, the way that you would if you just say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Maple Leafs fan. I've been bad for 50 years. I don't care. I go to every game. You know, it's a very different relationship. It's much more transactional than, uh, than, than we grew up with. Well, I'm glad you brought it there because – when you look at numbers that continue to go up, the question is, okay, well, will this bubble burst? For years, generations, people said the housing market eventually is, the bubble has to burst. People can continue to pay this rate for these homes. And in fact, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a bunch of op-eds that said maybe it's time to start renting because it doesn't make sense to own. Well, real estate is still going up, you know, 10%, depending on where you live year over year. But 
people will always need shelter. And there's only so much land uh, on the earth where people want to live. When you look at sports and these numbers continue to go up and up, I've, I've looked at it the same way. But you mentioned earlier the legacy media companies, at some point they'll have a breaking point, if not already. They can't continue to invest more and more on TV rights with lesser a return. Maybe the streamers might come in and augment some of that finance, but there will always be a business limit at some point. And in terms of the gambling money that's come in, I see it almost like the beginning of the legalization of marijuana, where the market was flooded to start. Lots of people wanted to spend a lot of money and get their brand out there. And then in the end, two or three or four brands rose to the top and the rest of the industry fell off. I wonder if the investment that we see at the beginning of the legalization of sports gambling will eventually go away because uh, a lot of that investment is about brand identity and affinity and less about the return on investment. Do you, you know, from an economic standpoint, do, do you see this being sustainable, what we have right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um... – I spent I spent a, a, a bunch of time at DraftKings over the past year because I, I was doing a a fast company story on that on on the industry and, and through the lens of DraftKings and and uh, you know they're convinced that there's going to be a consolidation that it's almost more for them like the early days of the internet um, and there was a lot of pent up there were a lot of customers. Like like your example of marijuana, there were people who were gambling when it wasn't legal, and as soon as it became legal, um, there were there was a ready-made customer base. The growth was you know precipitous. From there, the growth is going to be a little more organic. One of the things that's masked that in the United States has been the very slow process, state by state, of legalizing. As of right now, only 38% of America can legally place a bet. So the growth will happen there in the coming five years. They still have, you know, California, Texas, Florida still need to come online. Um, you almost can't mess that up. Uh, and, and what that does give you is an economy of scale. It, it, the, the national buy in the United States is so much more efficient. I think it is in Canada as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. But rather than, than picking off local markets, if you get an economy of scale, get a third, a quarter to a third, I think I think I think a third is the is the breaking is the, the the inflection point. You might as well buy a national television ad as opposed to uh, just targeting local markets. But once all that happens, there is going to be some consolidation. There is going to be some sense of um, uh, a sorting out with consumers that these, at least in each state, these two or three companies make sense they they can they can get enough business to thrive and the rest can't and you know the 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 situation is different in every state even in terms of how much of the profit government entities take so it's not you know this isn't and people people always say well there's no there's no better business than being the house in in gambling you know than running a casino and you just set the line and you you can't help but make money well, that's not necessarily the case if if a state is taking you know 26 percent of it or whatever. So some of the smaller companies are going to have a hard time uh, continuing to to 
succeed in that market. And I think as there, you know, you often see now these incredible deals. You know, will will uh, uh, LeBron James score one point in the Lakers game tonight? If so, you get a hundred dollars free of you know that stuff is going to go away because it's going to go from being a buyer's market eventually to being more of a seller's market or else these companies aren't going to be able to, to stay in the business. And when that happens, we'll see what the, um, what the levels of growth, uh, how the growth chart looks. You know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, we have the example in the, in the United Kingdom of, of 60 years of this. Gambling was legalized in the early 1960s. I think it will always help provide revenue from here on to to sports teams. Um, whether it's going to be, you know, the golden egg that keeps on keeps on giving, I think uh, remains to be seen. And it's a cautionary tale because once your fan base is accustomed to this transactional relationship with sports, it's just another form of entertainment, right? And entertainment is faddish. It's yeah, I used to watch that series. I got tired of it, or I used to watch a lot of Netflix, but now I play these games. I used to play this game, but now I moved on to this. You know, that's that's not the relationship that you want your 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 sports teams to have with its fans. Canada is an interesting comp because, similar to the United States, legalization has happened province by province, and it's been slow. It is legal in the province that I'm currently in, Ontario, which just happens to be a third of the country. So, you know, at that point you kind of are national if you just have Ontario. However, the entire country's population is a little bit lower than the population of California. So if you are mm-hmm. a DraftKings or a FanDuel, in terms of scale, uh, it is an interesting, uh, delicate dance that you have to do in terms of, as you mentioned, that organic legalization of it across the country to be national. There is another area where an inflection of unique resources into ownership groups and into sport can happen. And as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, maybe we might have to have a a rewrite, add some additional chapters. You know, you can never time these things, but I would love to have this philosophical conversation and and have some of these pointed questions that you asked of the book with what's going on in real time with Saudi and Qatari investment in sports, specifically now that – you know, live has happened in traditional sports. We've seen the NBA make changes uh, to their CBA so that there can be uh, investments from equity firms. We've already seen, you mentioned, uh, Leontis and the Monumental Group take the Qatari investment money. How do you foresee that dynamic changing? You know, some of these uh, market pressures and revolutions that you describe in the book. Yeah, really interesting topic because the theme that we've seen in the past 30-odd years has been a move from teams that didn't really need to make money because they're most of – you know, with, with uh, there were always owners, uh, Paul Brown of the, and then later Mike Brown of the Bengals. All they had was this football team, and they lived off of it. But, in, in you know, in large measure – at the turn of the last century, most of the teams were owned by um, owners or entities that didn't need to make a profit. It was a toy. Uh, to now, the 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 the, um, the size of the business is so big that they need to be run like businesses, and that's my theme. 
with these the Saudi investment uh, and before it um, internationally, international football, international soccer, with uh, the other Gulf states um, and and uh, clubs like PSG and Manchester City, you in a way go back to where we were, which is these clubs are being bought for reasons other than making money. And the investments in the, in the terms of Qatar, for example, uh, and I've been there and, and, and written about this, um, Qatar saw that oil reserves are going to dry up at some point this century. And they wanted to broaden their base and create, some, create a, a sustainable um, income model for the country. And so they began investing in sports. They brought in a WTA tournament. They advertised on Barcelona shirts. They, you know, put in the bid and, and won the bid to host the World Cup. Um, and they started they started buying clubs. And and the whole thing is a long term play that a hundred a few hundred million dollars plus or minus here is not going to really matter. Well, that's very difficult if you're a, a, a team playing against a team that can afford to lose a few hundred million dollars every year. And the dynamic there becomes uh, starts to threaten competitive balance and and competitive balance, especially in North America, is kind of the 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 you know the foundation that all these leagues are are built on. And you know you know all the North American leagues, they have the worst teams choose first in the draft, and they you know they don't have promotion and relegation. So it's it's incumbent on them because the league is only as strong in a sense as its weakest franchise. It's incumbent on them to to create a situation in which teams from all markets can compete and they do it with a salary cap in every league with baseball. They do it in uh, it with, you know, in myriad other ways with revenue sharing, with the sharing of, um, of, of uh, licensing. So that if, you know, if you buy a, a, a Montreal Canadiens uh, sweater, um, you know, the, 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 the Anaheim uh, uh Ducks also get some of that money, and you know there's there's a, a socialism inherent in the U.S. leagues that that uh, is incumbent on keeping everybody in the same uh, competitive. And now now if you have this investment groups, these investors come in and say we're going to do things that make no sense whatsoever financially. Maybe there's a salary cap, but maybe we'll pay that head coach you know thirty million dollars a year because there's no cap on that, or maybe we'll hire. Um, you know, the best 50 scouts from every other, from every other team and pay them exorbitantly so that they, I mean, there's a lot you can do that's not covered by the salary cap that if you're, if you have an owner who is willing to lose money in the service of, of, uh, of winning, um, there's not much anyone else can do. So, you know, there has been now with the, with the initial investment uh, in, into Monumental, into Ted Leonsis's company that owns the, the, the Caps and the Wizards, initial investment by Saudi Arabia, immediately there was an outcry of, wait a minute, let's not open this door. Let's not let Saudi Arabia use um, North American sports for sport washing to, to, to you know, a term that, that, that I'm sure you know that means to uh, uh, distract people from excesses and human rights violations by a government by creating this aura of goodwill among, among fans. Um, with with this sort of benign ownership, and let's not open this door to 
huge investment by entities that don't need to make money. So in a way, you have the, the, the Gulf states on what, way on one end of the spectrum and these investment groups like Redbird and, and Arcos and, and uh, uh, Clear Lake and Silver Lake on the other end. They're in it. The, the latter are in it only to make money. So there's not. So it's sort of this this soulless, you know, almost it's almost like a public company. We now have to hit these these quarterly and annual markers for our investors, um, which is, I think, uh, uh, you know, scary for uh, fans of a team. You don't want your team to be run like a, a publicly traded company. At the other end of this are the are the, the Gulf states that have a, a almost limitless budget. And uh, and the and the scary part there is that they'll invest too much and they'll run their team in a way that is financially irresponsible because it's not financially responsible for them, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I think the fear, uh, you know, on, on the side in terms of franchises being run like publicly traded companies, we've seen, you know, in the news in many cases, uh, the reality is that we'll hit our targets. We'll either sell and hit our targets or We'll cut and hit our targets, but that's ultimately right. we will hit our targets. And, and you know, if you're a fan, that's that's not a, a good uh, scenario to have. I, I will though push back on, on one thing that you said, and it's really because I'm a cynic, in that the North American model is based off of competitive balance. I think that's what's sold to us, uh, and maybe it's a romantic notion, but I actually think it's based off of a guarantee of financial, um, you know. Ability essentially, what, what we have in North American sports is, to your point, a socialist scenario where all these franchises are part of a cartel and their taxes exempt, and they're going to make sure that we all make money no matter what happens because we all act like you know franchise owners, not individual owners. Where in Europe, it's quite the opposite. It is much more capitalist, even though we think we are capitalist in North America, where we run these things as individuals, and if your club, you know, gets relegated, tough. Too bad. Figure it out. We we can, and if we're always in the Champions League and we're always spending, well, that's those are the breaks, and you happen to um, fall in line based off of what you spend. Is there a? Well, there, let me jump. Let me jump in there. You're absolutely right. I, I I absolutely agree with every word. I'm just. I just would say. The greatest way to ensure that each of your franchises operates at peak efficiency is to give its fans at least the illusion that they could conceivably win. So, so that's to me that's where that that, that competitiveness that unlike let's say in England where you, we've seen we've seen several times in in England in, in, in recent years because I cover this a lot for ESPN you've had you've had clubs promoted. Um, into the Premier League and a fan base that says, this is cool, this is fun, but we're more comfortable one notch down in the championship because we would rather win most of our games at a lower level than get kind of, you know, rolled over at a higher level. Uh, in the U.S., that would not be the case. It's just in, in Canada. That's a, it's a different mindset. Um, but I think there's a devotion. I, a friend who I write about in the book, Robert Elms, has been a Queens Park Rangers supporter. He's a he's a he's a well-known uh, radio um, host in London and, a, and an author. Um, very involved in the music scene for years, but he's been a Queens Park Rangers supporter since he was a little kid. You know, fifty odd years ago, um, and they've never been good. And he says, "Listen, that, that that's not the point for me. The point is to go 
to go every other week with all my friends and we have this ritual and we do all this. He says, if I had been, you know, if, 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 if it was a transactional relationship, like going to a restaurant and I had been put off by crap football, I would have stopped going 25 years ago. I don't care if, the, if what I see is any good. I don't care if we win. I care about the sense of community of following this, this club. Well, in the U.S., most fans care if you win. And, and I'm sure the same in Canada, too. There's so many other entertainment options available that you have to have at least the illusion that you've got a shot. And I think our sports leagues are built around creating that illusion with greater or lesser success. Obviously, fans of, uh, you know, of the Oakland A's and the Kansas City Royals this year, um, it's going to be hard to sell them that short-term they have a shot. But they have to feel like long-term they do have a shot and that by, by just putting up with this terrible team they have now, they're building for the future and creating a team that can, again, win. And I think all the structure of American, North American sports is in the service of creating that illusion. That's, you know, to me, that, and that's where the, the, the injection of this huge, almost limitless amount of money um, by entities that don't need to be fiscally responsible is, is troublesome. Well, love that you take it there because that's where I, I think the rub is in terms of the infusion of analytics and the trickle-down effect based off of the different types of people in front offices, the types of people owning, because what is truly winning? We talk about the film industry and you know major studios – an Academy Award might be nice, but winning is winning the box office weekend one. And so we look at the changes in baseball is winning and giving that guarantee to the fan, uh, your team winning on a Saturday and it's one, nothing, or it's 10, nine with lots of action, but we lost. What does the fan actually enjoy when you look at the changes in sport, both on how it's played on and the rules, is there a path towards winning with entertainment or is the ultimate path about just winning full stop? Well, you know, first of all, this is the only business that really has two bottom lines that there's, there's, there's winning, meaning making money. And there's the competitive aspect to it that, uh, that fans want. The two are, they're related, but they're not aligned. So you can, you can lose a lot of games, but still make money. Uh, the Maple Leafs are a great example. You can you you can win occasionally, uh, like Eddie DeBartolo's 49ers teams or Wayne Huizenga's Florida Marlins, and still lose money. But basically, the way to make money is to put out a good product, both on the field and in terms of your game day presentation. And with all the entertainment options available today. It's that that has almost become a necessity. Now, do teams want to win, or or should teams want to win and play non-entertaining in, in a non-entertaining way? Uh, Tampa Bay Rays are a really interesting example there because they are the most optimized Major League Baseball franchise um, on the field, and I'm, I'm actually spending a lot of time with them now because I'm doing a, a story on them off the field as well, but. The model that they've come up with that works for their unique business in which they, they draw many fewer fans, half the number of fans 
and many at reduced ticket rates uh, as the other leading clubs. They have a market that's really difficult, full of transplanted people with no loyalty to the local clubs. They're on the smaller side of a bifurcated market with a big body of water that's at least a psychological uh, um, uh, barrier for people. People from Tampa hate going to St. Petersburg, even though it's a 15-minute drive because there's this big bay in between, and they're like, I'm not driving over there. So there are a lot of – if they're going to win, they have to do it in a really optimized, really unique way. But that optimized way involves a steady stream in and out of players. If they have a star, and Eric Longoria, a, uh, Evan Longoria, a, um, a Blake Snell, they're, they're not going to be able to afford to keep him. And, and so the fan attachment with players that's, that's kind of the, the staple of so many other markets, they almost willfully uh, um, uh, ignore. And as you saw in the 2020 World Series against the Dodgers, um, Blake Snell was pitching one of the great games in World Series history, but analytically, it made sense third time around the order to take him out. And the result of that was at least potentially a greater chance of winning the game. Um, that it didn't end up that way, I agree with manager Kevin Cash. Hey, if something's the right thing to do 70% of the time, you got to do it if that's your goal. If the 30% comes up, what can you do? It doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. At the same time, though, for the good of the franchise and the good of the sport, you had one of these seminal moments that people build their entire loyalty around. Kids watching, adults watching, watching this incredible performance by a guy who was just not going to be denied. And you aborted that. And if you lose those emotional connections, I think they're a great example of a team that's winning in a way that is up until this point, and I, and I think things have changed this year, but up until this point, has not been that much fun to watch. And the and the attendance figures that you've seen, I think, reflect that. Now, this year, Randy Arozarena, the way that this team, I don't know how much attention you're paying to them, but they're a pretty, they're a fun, kind of flamboyant, interesting team. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. But uh, you raise an interesting, uh, an issue that I think, you see it a lot in English soccer. And, and uh, another thing to watch, and again, this may be in the weeds for your listeners, but Burnley is a club that that spent seven years, eight years in the Premier League playing the dullest possible football with in the service of, listen, this is the only way. We can't afford to compete with Man City and Arsenal and Liverpool. But if we do things, if we play this really slow-paced defensive style, it's not going to be a lot of fun to watch, but we're going to be able to sustain it. Well, last year they went down. It finally, They finally couldn't sustain it. They're coming back up this year with an, I wouldn't even say a vastly different club. It's the complete opposite. Vincent Company, the former Manchester City star, is their manager. And last year in the championship, they romped through with one of the most exciting attack-oriented um, teams you've seen there, you know, since Leeds. I mean, they and Leeds were really the two big attack-oriented teams that have come out of the championship in recent years. And now we're going to see what does the Burnley fan really want? A really uh, uh, an exciting, fun, fast-paced team that loses a lot of games four to two and five to three, or the old teams with manager Sean Dyche, which were a lot of nothing, nothing, and one nothing games. But but there was sort of this feeling of this is our, you know, we're almost like almost like going to a Packers game in zero degree weather. You know, it's like 
you know, this is we put up with this and we're strong and we're these northerners and we you know we're gonna it's not pretty but 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 look at the result you know it's it's going to be a real really interesting cultural uh question that gets right at what you're saying is it better to be entertaining or is it better to win lastly i want to touch on another cultural question and that is the investment in women's sport or lack thereof you talked about the investment in sport from the equity side of things of a friend of mine who who works in you know investment and he just said flatly i love women's sport but i can't tell a client to invest in it because we have 50 years of franchises losing money. It doesn't seem to be a great value proposition. On the other side, I speak to people who work in women's sport who say, find me another thing that has little marketing, little investment and can grow. You've got huge room to grow if you do invest. And so from a scale standpoint, you actually could get much more return on investment investing in women's sports than say if you invested in the big four given all the work that you've done uh, what's your perspective on the topic of of the, we're starting to see its change in who is investing in women's sport you look at angel city as an example of sophisticated uh, levels of ownership um, what do you see as the prospects moving forward yeah i think your first friend is misguided i, I think it's it's a huge bullish market um you, you you look at the, the valuation of these NWSL franchises coming off uh, uh, several scandals, both both the, the sexual assault and harassment scandal and financial uh, difficulties. Uh, under the, the leadership of a new commissioner, Jessica Berman, they've been a former NHL executive. They've been on fire. The, 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 the new teams in Boston and I think the Bay Area is the other one. Uh, they're all of a sudden they're they're at multiples that are 10 times what the old teams cost. And I think you've seen an awakening, not just of women who want to watch women play sports, but of men who appreciate the competitiveness and the interest of, of some of these women's sports. Now it's not across the board. You can't just invest in anything and it's going to work out. But I do think there's a huge potential for growth in women's soccer. Um, the women's world cup is, is uh, as you know, is, is coming next month. Um, I think it will be a far bigger deal in North America than it has yet been, despite the fact that the U.S. has won the last two. The television or, or, or streaming ratings are going to be double what they were. Uh, and I think there'll be a lot of holdover with that. Um, you've seen the ratings of women's college basketball. Uh, they're one of the few things, I think, that are, that are, that are, that are uh, picking up viewers and there's a carryover with that to the WNBA, which is, uh, for the first time, franchises with independent owners are actually making money or actually uh, or, or, or losing less money. They're, they're running their franchises responsibly, untethered from NBA teams in places like Atlanta and Las Vegas. And um, because they are, they're a great business opportunity. And, you know, you have half the people in the world, women, who have um, who have been over interested in men's sports over the years compared to how interested men are in women's sports? I think, given the opportunity to see women compete, and you see it in tennis, and and you see it in the Olympics in track and gymnastics and ice skating, some of the biggest international stars are women. 
when given that stage, there's something immensely appealing and immensely interesting about about the, the competitiveness there. It's definitely a buy, if you ask me. Um, you know, the question is how to find the right place on the on the very full plate, certainly in North America, of of sports we already have. But that you know that that somehow the new sports and the new uh, leagues, the new teams, we always do find a place. And you know, in an, in a world with increasing entertainment options, the only one that's really held its value is live sports. And that's what makes these franchises so appealing. It makes it's why television networks want to want to uh, want to cover them. Why why or get the streaming rights, and and why people want to buy in because you can always make another Seinfeld or another Friends or or whatever. But if there's a Stanley Cup final or a Kentucky Derby or whatever it is, there's only one of it, and and you got to watch it then. You can't just decide. A month later, all right, I forgot who won the Kentucky Derby. I'm going to go back and watch it. The value is right then, watching it live on the one entity that has the rights, and and that's not going to go away. And and now women's sports are beginning to have that. That for the first time this year, I'm hearing from lots of people who hadn't previously been interested. Hey, who's? How do I watch the Women's World Cup? When does that start? Is the U.S. going to win? And and I, and that's the awakening that I think started five, six years ago, and is, is far from far from peaking. Well, you can only make one of Game of Edges, the analytics revolution in the future of professional sports. Uh, I, I love, uh, you know, the depth with which you're tackling all of these topics and really making us think about them and their implications, the unintended consequences, without judgment. Uh, so thank you for giving us a perspective, and I will bother you as we leave this you know, talking about the growth of women's sport, I'll, I'll bother you in the future to come on and talk to us about the implications of NIL uh, for men and women, uh, because that's a fascinating topic as well. But continued success, Bruce. Thank you so much. Donovan, you're, you're terrific. I'll come on any time to talk about anything. And I so appreciate the, uh, the forum and the really, in, you know, the really uh, uh, intelligent conversation um, it's, it's really been a treat. I, I, I'm, I'm overjoyed to have been on and re- yeah, I mean, reach out anytime. Thanks so much again to Bruce for the time. You can get the book game of edges, wherever books are sold and you can get him on Twitter and his handles pretty straightforward at Bruce Schoenfeld, B R U C E S C H O E N F E L D. We spent a lot of time talking about the NFL, naturally, if we're talking about big-time sports and ownership, we talked a little bit of time talking about Canada. Well, let's spend some more time talking about both because the NFL and Football Canada have a groundbreaking partnership, and that'll be the point of our next discussion after this break. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Go and Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Grandma and Granddad. This is Donovan Bennett. This is Going Deep. And this is, at times, a football pod. And everything is better when it's in Canada pod. Well, we got a little bit of both. Is NFL Canada and Football Canada recently announced 
a landmark partnership that will essentially aim to support and hopefully enable the growth of football at all levels across our country. Pretty cool stuff. Which begs the question, why? Why does the NFL see this as not a nice market with some incremental revenue, but a market that they want to target, market to, grow, and invest in with some return? Given that this is arguably the biggest sports league on the globe, what do they need from the 36 million, give or change, Canadians? That's what I wanted to find out. So who better to talk to than the managing director of NFL Canada, David Thompson. Let's listen to and learn from David Thompson as we go deep on the NFL's investment in football right here in Canada. So, David, thanks for joining. And first off, big news. The NFL and Football Canada announced a groundbreaking partnership not too long ago to really foster and invest in the growth of football at all levels across this country. Why was that a strategic choice for the NFL to be intentional in Canada? Well, that's uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Donovan. I really appreciate it. Um, I think what makes this new relationship between NFL Canada and Football Canada so important for us is, you know, we want to make sure that the game of football long term is is healthy, that we have lots of people playing the game. And and we think that this partnership with Football Canada will really foster that for all of us. And I think if if we can help grow the game and partnership with Football Canada, it's good for everybody who touches the game coast to coast to coast. So obviously there's a, a need there, a problem that you're looking to solve or maybe get ahead of potentially. What do you see as the critical factors that you're hoping to address where the game would not be healthy uh, and growing moving forward? I think when we look at the future state, we need to have more young people playing the game. We need to have more young people of all genders playing the game. We need to have young people across the country playing the game. That really is what's driving our partnership with Football Canada is that we know that uh, people love to follow sports, Donovan, if they played the game when they're younger. And we believe that this partnership with Football Canada will help us create the next generation of football-loving Canadians across the country. Funny because, you know, there's an outsider listening to this. They're thinking, of all the issues the NFL might have, having people follow doesn't seem to be one of them. Stadiums well, are packed. There's a huge interest online. You know, viewership has gone uh, you know, continually through the roof. Um, you know, is there essentially some proactive work that you're looking to do, given you know trends that you're seeing across the board? Yeah, I, I think I think the the ultimate goal is that we do have people that follow this throughout their lives, right? That's you know part of the the play, but it really is that participation side. It is really getting the ball into younger uh, people's hands. And and really the focus for us with uh, Football Canada is that eight to 12 age group. It's really getting those younger folks, getting a chance to play the game, 
to have great coaches supporting them, uh, learning through programs like flag football. That's really the fundamental in terms of what we see as sort of the long-term payout, not only for the game, but also for the NFL in Canada. It's funny talking to someone who played in that 8-12 to 12 age group and you know enjoys watching football because uh, I understand the language of it in a way that's different from the other sports that I watch and enjoy. So what specifically are you hoping to do in that four-ish year period of Canadians? Uh, How can uh, NFL and NFL Canada bolster the ability for those young athletes to participate in the game? I think there's two or three key aspects to it. One is, and in working with Football Canada, you know, they're the folks that can really deliver the programs to the communities in partnership with the provincial uh, and local community clubs. So in partnership with them, we want to have more kids signing up to play the game, to play in flag leagues, leagues, to participate in development camps to support the growth and development of our coaches across the country. We're going to help Football Canada do that. So all of those opportunities to get more young people, better coaches involved in the game is really the the, the focal point of, of this partnership. You mentioned of all genders, specifically when you answered, uh, in terms of who you want playing the game. Let's talk about... Um, not necessarily boys playing the game, yeah. uh, which obviously you know we have. But w- why is it important um, for diverse uh, accounting of athletes to be playing the game at a young level? Well, I, I think first and foremost, you know, that it, if we do it well, we're addressing the needs of all Canadians. So I think the the beauty around things like flag football, Donovan, is that it is probably the most accessible. Uh, way into the game of football. You know, you can be uh, an eight-year-old young boy, young girl. You basically are on a a very equal playing field. And flag gives that opportunity for all genders to get into the game early, to be truly inclusive. And I think that's really what sport in general is, is, is working towards, is giving more opportunities for inclusive sports. And I think that's where our partnership with Football Canada and, and, the, and the aspects of flag football really fit well. So in order to measure success of this partnership, you need to start with a baseline. So where are we now? What are the trends that you're seeing in terms of Canadians uh, in their viewership, in their attendance, in their engagement in the sport? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, One is we are seeing the growth of youth football in Canada uh, growing, especially uh, post-pandemic. We're seeing a lot more kids signing up for programs at the provincial level, at the community level. So we know that there's uh, interest in the game. Uh, Flag football across the world, Donovan, is actually one of the fastest growing sports uh, across the globe, uh, which is part of the reason we partnered with the International Federation of American Football to uh, lobby for uh, LA 2028 to include flag football as a official sport in the Olympic Games. So we really see some tremendous growth led by flag. 
when it comes to the the game in Canada in general, I think we're in a really good place. I think we've just got we've got better years ahead of us with a lot more focus uh, and, and effort. And you can see that in the translation of, of five Canadian players this year being drafted into the NFL uh, a few weeks ago, which is the highest number of Canadians ever drafted uh, at any one NFL draft in history. The Olympic aspect really intrigues me. And as we've talked about on this podcast extensively, breakdancing is going to be a sport in Paris. So for some people who may hear flag football, how's that going to be a thing and might roll their eyes? We're really seeing the expansion of what we consider, quote unquote, Olympic sports. It, I'd love to unpack that a little bit further. Where um, is that conversation and how far along in the process uh, are we? And, and would that be theoretically a sport? Again, uh, that would be for both uh, genders if offered at the Olympics. Uh, that's correct, Donovan. I, I think from the information that I'm aware of, the progress is, is very, very good in terms of the IOC um, having significant consideration from IFAF uh, towards including flag football into 2028. The decisions are not made, uh, but I think there's been tremendously good progress um, and I think, you know, you've got to give the IOC credit as well to your point about breakdancing. You know, they have been willing to and explore different sports included into the games over the years. And I think uh, it's high time that flag football be included uh, when we get to 2028 L.A. You mentioned the number of Canadians that we're seeing drafted every year, really expecting to see drafted every year. And the biggest change for me, over the course of my time being close to the game, is you would get Canadians in the NFL when I was young, but they were almost exclusively long snappers, kickers. Maybe you got a, a, a D lineman that was really strong and raw, or you know, an offensive lineman that's a death player. Now you're getting skill position players, uh, interior defensive tackles. When you look at not just the passport, but the positions of players uh, and the depth of players. Uh, that are going into the league. One, someone who has an NFL crest on their chest right now, how does it make you feel? But two, you know, why do you think that is the case? Well, I, th I think I think there's a couple of factors. One is, I think that young Canadian athletes that are playing football now have folks that they can look up to. Uh, they have um, players that they can emulate their careers behind. So I think you know, the, the old adage of if, if you can see it, you can be it, I think it's becoming more and more true for Canadians in the NFL. The second piece, though, and this is really the crux of it, is I think you have an incredibly um, well-developed yet uh, underappreciated uh, provincial uh, high school uh, community-based football programs that are really dedicated to helping these young athletes um, aspire to whatever ambition that they have, um, which is underpinned by tremendous family support. So I think that there's so many more kids with great potential playing the game, being identified earlier and earlier than ever before. Uh, and those aspirations and their dreams are starting to come true. When we look at the growth uh, of the league and the sports and the franchise value, um, you know, everything outside of the Premier League um, is far beyond where the NFL is from a business standpoint. So the question is, how valuable is Canada, the Canadian market, the international market 
to the league. Can you put in perspective the importance of the Canadian market to the NFL? No, it's a great it's a great question, Donovan. The the way I look at it is, you know, we are becoming very much a global um, sport, uh, a global brand, and in Canada, we are second only to the United States as it relates to understanding the game, playing the game uh, in our youth, all the way through hopefully to young adulthood. Um, and so, with 13 million fans across our country, we probably have. Uh, about one in three Canadians saying that they're fans of the NFL. So, as a as a as a business and as a unit of the NFL, we are significantly important to that that overall uh, aspect of the business and growing year over year. And it, and you look to the players that have just been drafted. That's the next generation that is really going to continue to fuel uh, our fan base uh, in the coming years. So we're we're in a very strong position. Uh, from a Canadian side. And it makes me feel really proud to see more and more Canadians um, get their just uh, rewards. You know, it uh, is, you know, somewhat, um, you know, uh, somewhat meaningful that we're having this conversation on the day that the NFL announces uh, the expansion of the Global Markets Program. And, you know, 21 teams across 14 markets in, in Canada, that means, you know, the Minnesota Vikings and the Seattle Seahawks uh, in Ontario. There's many Bills fans that are saying, what about us in Quebec? There's many Patriots fans who are saying, what about us? Can you walk us through uh, exactly what the global markets program is, what it means and and how it changes the way individual franchises will do business uh, internationally and how the individual teams were paired with countries, if you will? There's there's a lot to unpack in that one question. Um, keeping it really straightforward, the, the, the global marketing program really allows clubs to bid on and be awarded uh, international territory rights. Um, so unlike their home market rights in the United States, which is a, a certain geographic um, radius around their stadium, they can go into a international market and basically market their brand, their club, their players uh, across a country. So it really fosters not only the international and global aspirations of the league, uh, because frankly, having more players, more clubs marketing the NFL, that's good for all of us. Um, and I think it comes down to where clubs see opportunities amongst a, a growing or nascent fan base that they think they can really uh, capitalize on. Uh, from a Canadian point of view, to your point earlier, Donovan, we have both the Seahawks and the uh, Minnesota Vikings uh, as our two um, global market uh, partner clubs in Canada. And they really see the opportunity to continue to grow their brands within our country with a lot more dedicated focus and, and effort on their part. Um, so it really goes hand in hand to helping the league achieve a lot of our objectives as it relates to global growth. It meets the needs of clubs, uh, depending on the territories that they, they bid on. Um, and frankly, I think it's just more people investing in the game of football is a good thing. And Part of my ignorance, but why the need for a specific program? Why not 
this free enterprise. If the Niners and the Raiders want to be the team of Mexico, if the Jaguars want to play in London every year and want to be the team of the UK, um, why not allow these teams to do this, um, you know, as they wish? Why set up um, really locations and geographical catch-alls to make sure that teams are situated in a certain spot? Yeah, I think I think it ties back mostly to how can we collectively work with with our clubs to ensure that they can be successful in these global initiatives. And, you know, the clubs run very, very big businesses in their own home markets, you know, traveling abroad to to grow their brand within the NFL internationally. Um, I think the approach we're taking is a much more measured approach than just allowing it to be a free-for-all. I think it helps to ensure um, the right level of support from the league to the clubs in those markets um, to really build it in a thoughtful, um, uh, structured way. Uh, and lastly, you know, what's next? Uh, when you look at the NFL and its relationship to Canada, we are seeing the draft being a traveling roadshow. Uh, and essentially, we talked about this on this podcast before, what is a conference call is now a, a live event uh, in a tourist destination. You know, could we see potentially you know, a draft in Canada? Could we see a Super Bowl uh, in Canada? Where do you think um, this relationship uh, will go in the future? I think I think there's a tremendous number of opportunities for Canada um, to to play host to future um events because uh, i think that we really see the value of continuing to support uh the fan base that we have in canada uh we have had uh preseason games here in the past uh we certainly want to foster more opportunities like that in canada and i think it's an evolutionary process i think there are opportunities for us as a league and some of our partner clubs to to do more on the ground from a pure football side uh but those are plans that are uh constantly in the in the works and we want to make sure that we can do our best to meet the needs of our fans and our clubs as often as we can well when we talked about uh, the world cup the other football the world's football coming to canada uh, in a couple years as excited as many people were uh, there was a segment of the sports fan base who said oh, wow maybe that uh, will open up uh, the opportunity the possibility for potentially an nfl uh, game here given uh, the infrastructure assuming it is a success so uh, we'll continue uh, to follow what the league does both in the United States and abroad, specifically in Canada. And we'll continue to follow what you do with the eight and 12 year olds that are gonna be the future of the league, but also the future of the fan base. So thank you so much for taking the time, David. Thanks, Alvin. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much to David. And you know what, I was recently at a conference, shout out to Rash Madani, who was hosting it. It was put on by the OUA here in Canada. It was diversity in sports conference. You had administrators and coaches and executives and athletes and volunteers from all different areas of amateur sport in our country coming together to talk about the diversity of sport. And one thing that was really apparent to me is that there are a lot of people, specifically because my lens is often at football, but in sport in general, that are doing great work growing the grassroots. And that sport 
never really gets to the level of our first conversation this episode, big business, without it having a solid base of people giving up their time and their energy to make sure that young kids have a great recreational experience. So that's not lost. And the fact that the NFL, a big business, is coming back to Canada to help, to put in infrastructure, to make sure that that's done in a real important way for those young athletes, it's a good sign. Thanks for listening. This was a fun convo. If you enjoyed it, well, stay tuned because we have more deep conversations, hence the name of the show, coming up that are just like that. In the interim, please listen, rate, favorite, subscribe, tell a friend to tell a friend, and download. Cheers.